Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Convocation. My name is Becky Horst, and one of the hats that I wear here is Convocation Coordinator. Just a couple of words about audience participation. First, I want to say thank you to the vast majority of you who have your laptops closed, your iPads closed, your cell phones put away, your textbooks put away. Thank you. You're being courteous to the people around you. You're being courteous to the speaker because, you know, in this round place, the speaker can see everyone, even in the back row. So thank you. And for those of you for whom that isn't true, please remember that this is a place to celebrate and support each other's learning. This is a place to be here now. This morning we have a treat. We're going to hear about one of the passionate learning examples at Goshen College, the Maple Scholars Program, and that will be introduced by Dr. John Ross Bushert, physics professor. So let's welcome him. Thank you. As Becky said, I'm John Bushert, professor of physics, but I'm also the co-director with Paul Keim of the Maple Scholars Program. Maple Scholars is a summer program bringing students and faculty together in scholarly work, creative endeavors, uh, research uh, projects of various types. It's a broad uh, program, involves all of the different disciplines on campus. It's also a community, a community of students and faculty working together on their own projects, but also interacting learning from each other, finding interdisciplinary connections between projects. It's an eight-week summer opportunity that pays students $2,500. Each year, faculty members prepare proposals, and there's a selection process, and then a list of projects is posted on the Maple Scholars website. You can look for that. It'll go up sometime at the end of the semester, beginning of December. And the, there's a description of each of the projects, a little bit about what the student would be doing, uh, something about what the professor might expect that a student would, uh, would bring to the project, skills or special uh, courses that they should have beforehand. Students can apply to any of the projects. The applications are due the beginning of February. So you've got Christmas and the beginning of the next uh, semester to think about it and apply to a program. The program itself runs during June and July. So it's eight weeks during the summer. Students are all housed together and they work full time on a project. They meet daily with a professor and work on their project. They also visit each other's projects. They're housed together, um, sort of trying to build a community uh, of students interacting, a, a community of scholars. Once a week, the group gathers for a colloquium in which students and faculty present the work that they've been doing for each other. Then at the end, there's a celebration day when the public is invited and friends and family come and see the presentations. But you're about to experience a bit of the fun that we have during the summer of these Friday colloquiums when everybody's presenting their work. Sometimes it's just showing what didn't work. I don't think we'll see too much of that this morning, but we're gonna have examples of five of the projects from this, this summer. So without further ado, let's see what this is all about.
Greetings. I'm Kent Palmer, and this is Caleb Hochstetler, and I uh, teach the informatics courses at Goshen. Uh, Caleb studies not only informatics, but biology as well. Uh, last year, um, we were excited when Goshen College decided to supply iPads to students. Because frankly, it's a lot more fun of a device than a zip. Uh, and with a Zune, you can play MP3s, and you can play videos. Um, but with the iPad, um, you can do other things, um, maybe video chat, um, maybe make voice calls. Um, there's a whole lot more games available on uh, the iPad. So um, if you want to play Angry Birds, Avenger Initiative, Bastion, Wild Blood, all those sorts of things, um, you want an iPad and not a Zoom. <laughs> and so um, I'm sure that many of you are discovering those sorts of things on the iPad, but um, the school didn't supply you with the iPads, um, or the first years with the iPads, because um, they were an entertainment device. Um, that really wasn't the goal of the school. Um, instead, we looked on the iPad as an information appliance. And the school provided iPads because they make it easy, fast, convenient to access information. And that's important for students in their studies. In grade school, you memorized little facts of information. So capital of Wisconsin is Madison. So we, we got that down. <laughs> and um, the iPad has some nifty little apps to help you learn that sort of thing. Um, but in college, it's about information, but not quite in the same way as it was in grade school. Instead of memorizing those little facts, we're really more interested in can students analyze information? How can they apply the information effectively? And can they communicate uh, what they found or what they've created uh, in their research with others? That's true in nearly any discipline. You take courses in here. You could find out in an art course, a history course, physics, sports management. Pretty much all the disciplines would do that. So tools that make accessing and manipulating information faster and easier is very important for students to have. So Goshen College supplied that type of tool to their students. And We have somewhat of a quandary, though, because holding the iPad probably isn't going to make students smart. Probably hasn't done much for you yet if you've just been holding the device. 
And so over the summer, um, Caleb uh, looked at ways we could make this tool useful to students. Um, now, iPads are a programmable device. So to make it useful, one writes apps. And to get the iPad to do things, you've got to have an app. And several programming languages are available to write those apps in. And a lot of Caleb's work this summer was looking at the alternatives that we could use for creating apps on the iPad to determine uh, that what app would be best, our language would be best for Goshen. Um, he looked at certain courses that might use the iPad. These were not every course we offered, but he did touch on a variety of areas, math, Arabic, um, music. Um, and so Caleb will now share a little bit about what he did over the summer. All right. So I'm Caleb Hoseler, senior biology and informatics major. And as Ken already mentioned, I spent this past summer uh, working with him and several others in the IT department to develop iPad apps to be used for the college and these new shiny iPads that these freshmen have obtained. But um, <laughs> I was asked to share a good memory or growth moment from my research but throughout the summer, one thing that I learned when I was telling people what I was doing this summer and making apps, that about 90% or so had absolutely no clue what I was talking about that I was actually doing. So I just would say about the two sentence, really terrible definition of what making an app really means. And that's going to be that it's taking a programming language code and putting it in some sort of program that knows how to read it and can turn it into an app. So in, in a way, this coding and what I've done this summer is essentially learning a new language that can be then developed to actually make an app. So now that you have that information, I think the coolest part of this experience for me was how I never thought that I'd be doing this, mainly because I couldn't even imagine it, mainly because it didn't even exist three years ago about, I think it was three years ago, that um, Steve Jobs had actually announced the iPad back in 2010. So, and now here I am as a lowly college student and with little information about this, but still able to work on apps and especially work on apps for subjects that I know little to nothing about, such things as like music, which I know something about, but other things like Arabic, which I couldn't tell you one word of, but I'm still able to work with it. And that's the cool part that we've talked about as Maple Scholars. A lot of what we talked about this year and we kind of chuckled at at some points was the inter interdisciplinary nature of our projects. And it was thrown around a lot and we enjoyed talking about it and talking about how our projects were very collaborative, but that truly is the cool part of this experience. The Maple Scholars is truly a unique collaborative experience that I was glad to be able to participate in and hope others of you are able to take advantage as it, advantage of it while your time at Goshen. So next time you think about the iPad, I challenge you to think of some of the more positive attributes that it can bring, <laughs> such as creativity and collaboration and innovation. And also, if you haven't checked out any of the iPads yet this year, I said maybe you can like poke a freshman or like 
not take it from them, but you know, like, <laughs> ask to see their iPad and maybe check out the app that I worked on, which was the Goshen one, which has just a lot of nice resources for it. And so check it out, and you don't have to be impressed. It's not Angry Birds or anything that much fun like that, but I'm happy for having a hand in making it. Thank you. Good morning, I'm Deb Brubaker, professor of music. And uh, my Maple Scholars project this summer was in conjunction with student Lisa Horst, who is uh, doing her student teaching right now, so she's not able to uh, help with the presentation. But Lisa did the bulk of the work, and I served more as a guide. What we worked on is archiving recordings that Dr. Mary Oyer, who is a professor emerita here at Goshen College, you may have heard her name before, compiled in her many journeys to the African continent. Uh, Dr. Oyer was professor of music here at Goshen for about four decades, and the blue hymnal that you have in front of you in, in the racks uh, directly carries her influence. It was uh, our first hymnal to include uh, music from the continent of Africa, and there is a, a wide variety of international music in that hymnal, and as we are knowledgeable now, that uh, international music continues to inform the Mennonite community as we become more aware of each other across cultures. One of the things that Dr. Oyer did in her travels to Africa uh, was to resonate with this quote. She headed to the edge of her own tradition in order to meet people who were reaching out from the edge of their own. Dr. Oyer started in the 60s as a woman who had hair pulled back in a bun and wore a covering. And she went to Africa as a classically trained musician. And what she encountered there in the music and the culture and the people and the experience totally, for want of a better term, rocked her world. She came back and realized that music had so much to it, and not only the making of music, but the connection of people while they were making that music. This summer, the research project that Lisa participated in was built directly on the research that Dr. Oyer had done. Uh, it's starting in 1969, Dr. Oyer uh, had a Fulbright scholarship and uh, she traveled over the course of the next 20 years to 22 African countries. And over that time, she took her little cassette recorder. Sometimes she would hide it in her big black purse and turn it on during a worship service. Sometimes she would take it out into the field and sit under a large fig tree while some kind of celebration was going on. And we have 150 cassette tapes, each of them 45 to 90 minutes long, filled with music, commentary, uh, lessons that she was receiving on various African instruments. What Lisa's job was, and this was built on a Maple Scholars project that had been begun by Solomon Fenton Miller six years ago, is Lisa's job was to transfer all of that information from analog to digital. And that's what she spent most of her time this summer doing, uh, sitting next to a computer with a little audio box and pushing play on the cassette tape player and moving that into the computer. Eventually, we're hoping that those uh, tapes can be further divided into tracks, each track can be analyzed, and that we can eventually create a database that will allow researchers and sociologists and ethnomusicologists 
to say, I want to search for music that was done in Ghana. And they can search for Ghana, and there will be a list of all of these live field recordings, which uh, many are, um, the instruments themselves are no longer in existence. So it's a really, really important resource and tool that we're, we're hoping we can build on. These are Lisa's words about what she did this summer. During this past summer, I worked very closely with Professor Emerita Mary Oyer. I visited her twice a week to make an audio recording about her thoughts and experiences during her African travels. So not only was Lisa transferring information, but she was interviewing the source of the information. Mary is now nearly 90 years old and still uh, has a genius mind that could challenge any of our minds on this information. Lisa says, as I visited with Mary over many meals and afternoons in her home, I began to realize that I was being blessed with the beginning of a new and profound relationship. As she told stories of her travels, I began to relate them to experiences I had on SST in Nicaragua during the summer of 2010. Our separate experiences living abroad gave us a unique connection and an abundance of topics to discuss. Despite being in Goshen, I felt like I was traveling to Africa every day, listening to her stories and the rich music she recorded. And here we have a picture of Dr. Oyer showing Lisa how to play a single stringed instrument. Dr. Oyer has a, a museum of over 100 instruments that she brought back from her various travels, and these are museum quality instruments. This one in particular, if you can see, it's a little dark, but at the end of the neck of the instrument, there is some that looks like hair hanging down from it. It's actually goat hair. We were assured that it was not human hair or something like that. Um, one of the amazing things about this discovery of interviewing Dr. Oyer um, was how much it informs us when we listen to the, to the music. I'm going to play next a recording uh, of an Ethiopian singer and instrumentalist. It comes on pretty loud, so be prepared. Uh, and it's one thing to listen to that and say, well, yeah, that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. But then next you're going to hear a recording of Dr. Oyer making some commentary. And all of a sudden, the depth of understanding that we have about this music deepens. So you hear a singer and you hear a little bit of a, of a string instrument in the background and you say, well, that's really interesting. But here's a deeper understanding of that uh, based on the recollection of Dr. Oyer. In January of 1973, I went to Ethiopia for their great festival of the year that is Timka, which is, uh, corresponds to our, our uh, epiphany on January the 6th. Theirs comes later in January, but it is the a high festival for them. And it brings people from all over. Uh, Ethiopians come back to Ethiopia if they're abroad for it. It's a, a very important time. And it... Um, 
So you already are getting a depth of understanding, you're getting a context for this music, and it becomes a sociological study in addition to a musical study and also a religious study. And so we are planning on putting these interviews that Lisa has done alongside the music on the database so that we can get a deeper understanding. Lisa writes about her discovery this summer. It was a time of exploration into ethnomusicology and archival studies, but most of all, it was an experience that left me with a new mentor and a friend. Mary, having already traveled and lived a very rich life in many countries and communities, and me, just about to begin my unknown post-college future, were able to learn from each other's experiences in a distinct but exciting way and I was very happy to play the part of being a connection between someone who had been my professor and someone who was now my student. Hi, I'm Kate Yoder. I'm a sophomore art and English writing double major at Goshen. And last summer, I worked with history professor John Roth, who's on sabbatical right now, on the Bearing Witness Project, or the Suffering Church Stories Project. And I explored stories of martyrdom in the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition. Um, here's some background information for people who aren't really familiar with Anabaptism and martyrdom. Anabaptism emerged um, in the Reformation and its members believed in non-resistance and believers' baptism, which is basically that you're not baptized as an infant, but later in life when you choose to be. And um, they were perceived as a radical group and kind of dangerous to the social order um, by other Christian groups and were persecuted and many martyrs were created. And the Anabaptists kept very careful records of um, the martyr stories and the Martyr's Mirror, which was completed in 1685, it's kind of the culmination of all the stories that had been written, and it remains popular among Anabaptist groups today. After 1685, the church, um, even though suffering still continued, like in the church, especially the global church, we haven't continued the process of carefully gathering these stories like we did at, in the beginning. Um, this is the most famous image from the Martyr's Mirror. It's of Dirk Willems, who's a martyr that um, he was pursued, and then his pursuer fell through the ice, and he went back to save him. So today, um, the Mennonite faith, which emerged from Anabaptism, is no longer concentrated in Europe or even in North America. Instead, it's growing on continents like um, Latin America, Asia, and Africa, where 60% of Mennonites live today. And it's in these areas that suffering still occurs the most in the global church. So for my Maple Scholars project, I worked on a few different tasks. One was compiling a comprehensive bibliography on martyrdom in the martyr's mirror, which I put, then posted on the Global Anabaptist Wiki. And I explored how memories of suffering are kind of incorporated into a cultural memory and studied one group of modern martyr stories in depth, and then prepared for the Bearing Witness consultation in August, which we'll talk about in a bit. So one of the most notable parts of my project was the lengthy research essay that I wrote, or started writing. And I researched um, World War I conscientious objectors who were drafted and sent to work in military camps 
despite um, their religious views, which were against that. And they, were, they experienced physical and verbal abuse, and some were even sent to prison. And my essay explores how they frame their experiences in the language of Anabaptist, the Anabaptist martyr tradition, and then um, explores why these stories kind of disappeared from the collective consciousness and after World War I, and why they aren't really that well remembered today. So after Maple Scholars, I worked at the Bearing Witness Consultation, which took place on August 5 to 8 at Goshen College. And there were 35 participants from seven different countries around the world. And we discussed um, like strategies for gathering stories of martyrdom from the Global Anabaptist Mennonite Church. Um, some topics that we talked about were like which stories should be included from this project and which shouldn't be. Um, what the definition of martyrdom would be, like do martyrs necessarily have to die for their story to be included or can, is any suffering significant in a way? Um, we also discussed strategies for gathering stories and plans for moving the project forward. And what I helped with uh, during the consultation was kind of the logistical setup, like making name tags and that sort of thing. And I also participated and took minutes, so I was very busy. Um, during Maple Scholars, I learned a few different skills, like creating edi editing media wiki pages, and the process for writing an in-depth research essay, and I learned what it would be like if I would be a history major. Um, I presented work and findings in symposium to the other Maple Scholars, but I think my favorite thing was um, I worked in WISE 3, and every day at 10 o'clock, everyone on the third floor, the professors and whoever was there would gather for tea, and I'd listen to the professors discuss everything from the Hunger Games to iPads to bribery, and it was probably my favorite part of the experience. Thanks. All right, so I'll have a quick introduction. Uh, my name is Andy. I'm an assistant professor in biology. Uh, uh, although I'm better known as the bee guy, uh, I work with honeybees, and this summer I worked with Mara Schwarzenjuber, who was my uh, research student. And one of the things I often get asked is, why in your right mind would you ever want to sting yourself with a honeybee? And as an example of passionate learning, my answer would be, why would you not? Why would you not want to do that? Um, I have up here two things. This is called a bee smoker. Uh, this is used to calm the bees down so they don't sting you. And this is a little bit of molded beeswax, which is one of the rewards of the hive. And um, I just wanted to say that an example of sort of passionate learning for me is that when you work with the bees, um, you have the sting, but then you also have the reward, whether it's the sweetness of honey or the, the, the nice beeswax. And so an example of that is sort of um, nothing worth doing comes easy. So there's risk and challenge in everything you do. And if you're working with bees, you might get stung, but you have the reward of the honey and the wax. And with that, I'll let Mara talk. All right. So like Annie said, I'm Mara Swartzentruber. I'm a senior biology major. And my project this summer was looking at circadian rhythm in honeybees. So I was looking at differences in circadian rhythm between two different subspecies of honeybees, the Carniolans and the Italians. 
I was looking at behavioral as well as genetic differences um, between the two. Uh, for the behavior portion, I observed marked bees in observation hives and looked for any behavioral differences between the two subspecies. And for the genetic portion, I chose five different circadian clock genes to amplify and look for any genetic differences between the two. Um, the most interesting finding that I found from my results was there was a difference in one of the genes that appeared in both subspecies, so this means that there may be a significant difference for that one gene between the two subspecies. Um, I'm going to be continuing to do research this fall, so hopefully I can confirm my findings and maybe other differences will arise from that. Uh, for Maple Scholars as a whole, I found it a very valuable experience. I was, have been considering going to grad school in the next couple of years after I graduate, so being able to do this project exposed me to how research, what research may be like in grad school, and being able to do an individual project might replicate a project that I would do in grad school. And also doing research showed me aspects that I really enjoy, as well as aspects that I may not be for me, but it was nice to have that experience and see what I like. Um, not only, I not only learned about research, but by having Andy as my advisor, I learned a lot about beekeeping and the social life of bees. Um, during the summer, we were able to go out occasionally and check on the hives out on campus, and it was nice to have a little break from lab work and be able to go out in the field and actually work with the bees themselves. One of the fun things we were able to do this summer was extract the honey that, um, from the hives out on campus. It was cool to actually see a product come from the bees that we were working with. Uh, by doing the symposiums at, during Maple Scholars, it exposed me to different types of research that were in different fields of study. It was interesting to learn about other projects that were not always from a scientific background. I know research is typically in the hard sciences, but it was interesting learning about research in other fields of study. And it also taught me the importance of understanding material completely when explaining research to other disciplines because they might not know the terminology or have the same background. So it was it taught me to know exactly what you're trying to say when speaking to people in other backgrounds. But overall, I thought Maple Scholars was a valuable experience, and I encourage anyone who's interested in research in any sort of field to consider it and maybe do the program for a summer. Thanks. My name is David Hausman. I'm a mathematician, and Phil Bontrager is a math and uh, informatics and or some sort of major there. Um, <clears throat> what is a fair way to allocate resources? Uh, for example, um, this could be who should receive the next available kidney for a transplant. Or it could be the number of congressional representatives that each state should receive after a census. Or in a joint endeavor, for example, renting an apartment with different size bedrooms, um, 
how should the costs be portioned out to the participants in that joint endeavor? Phil considered the question, what portion of an estate should each inheritor receive? More specifically, he was interested in, um, are there good ways of visualizing different allocations and how fairness might fit into that? So we decide we'd come up with a simple example here. We have an estate here of one chocolate bar and 100 cents. And before the start of the convo, I asked a few people um, uh, if they'd like to participate in this. So Stacy is one of our participants. You can stay there, you don't have to, but um, she, she said that she thought that the chocolate bar was worth $2.59 to her. Um, the other volunteer is Jake. Uh, Jake thinks that the chocolate bar is worth about 25 cents to him. So the, the two of them have equal ownership shares in this small estate. Certainly, one seemingly good way or fair way of dividing this estate would be to give each of them half of the chocolate bar and 50 cents. But there are some other possibilities, and that's what Phil will tell us about. Hello. I'm going to show you how this little uh, software applet helps visualize these solutions. Um, this blue region right here shows all the different ways we can divide up uh, chocolate and money for Stacy. You see this is Stacy's portion. So as David said, we initially divide this up so that she gets about 50 cents and about 50% of the good. And you'll see if you go to Jake, he gets the exact same thing. And what we're going to go here is to this payoff tab. Now what the payoff tab does is it takes how much they value what they're getting and it adds it up with the amount of money they're getting to see what it's worth to them. So you can see that with, the, with Jake valuing the chocolate bar at only 25 cents, with him getting 50% of that chocolate bar, the whole thing's worth about 50 cents to him. And to Stacy, it's worth about 170, 170 cents what they're dividing up. So just looking at this, you see that there's other ways to divide it up, this entire blue region is this blue region from over here. And it becomes clear that you can, if you move in this direction, there's solutions where they're both better off. They're both getting uh, more payback. So you realize that that last solution wasn't an efficient solution. So what this allows you to do is select, and it highlights in red, you can see this line here, all the efficient solutions that you can choose. So then you can go you can choose an efficient solution, and then you can go back and see how you would have to divide that up um, if you wanted to make, get that more efficient solution. Now the thing with efficiency is it's not necessarily fair because you could give Jake everything, which would mean Stacy would get nothing, and it'd still be efficient because you couldn't make uh, Stacy better off without making Jake worse off. So another aspect that we looked at would be equitability. Now the one I'm going to explain today is share equitable, where they both get the same percent of the estate. So this, I'm going to go to the shares tab, is basically the same as the payoff tab, except for it's labeled in percentages instead of in cents. And so if you, the 50-50 um, breakup we'd done earlier, you'll notice, would be a share equitable solution, where each person gets 50-50. But 
they could each get 60, 60, and so on. So this you can select and it'll show you all the share equitable solutions. And then you can see what that looks like on the different graphs and you can see how you would divide up that solution if you went back to the portions. Now the last uh, element of fairness that I'm gonna to explain today that we looked at is called envy free. And this would be that when you divide it up, the, everybody, nobody is jealous of what the other people get. They value what they get the most. So as long as each person gets over 50% in their view, then they're not gonna be jealous because the other person has to get less than 50%. So this region right here, envy free, you see this green region, each person, it's the overlapping region where each person gets at least 50%. So when you highlight all three of this, these fairnesses, you can choose a solution. You can try to find an optimal solution in here and see that that solution right there where each person gets a little over, it looks around 80%, in their view, they're getting, they think they're getting around 80%, and this works because they value things differently. And it's an efficient solution, and it's also share equitable. And then you can go back here, and it actually tells you how to break this up then, because then David, looking at this, could give um, what is it? zero of the good to Jake and give him about 95 cents and then he could give all of the chocolate to Stacy and about five cents. And that would be the most optimal solution. <laughs> Assuming they were telling the truth about how much they value the chocolate. I worked on that and then I also did a few generalizations looking at more goods or if you add a third person it suddenly becomes more complex where you have 3D regions which I'm not going to explain that today so that's what I you could use this in a you could use this in a class though which was the point of these projects So yet another reason to join Maple Scholars is for the sweets that we get, both honey and chocolate. Um, well, what I would like to encourage you to do is to ask your favorite professor what they are passionate about. Ask them if they will submit a Maple Scholars project. Maybe encourage them to do so. Look for that list that's gonna come out. Look through it, see what excites you but maybe you can start something right now. If you talk with your professors, they may be working on projects already now and you can join them. Discover the passion of your professors and learn with them. It's a good way to find out your own passion. Go and be passionate learners. Thank you. <laughs>